0: Someone in the, in the far distance would play a drum with a couple of tibula, and you would hear the drum and recognize that it was saying something to you. Other people could also hear it. It's not just for you, right? The radio, unlike podcasts, the radio DJs were not talking just in your ears. They weren't only your friend. Everybody could hear them, just like the
1: drum. Will you explain Cairo to me? I was familiar with Cairo through Luke Burbank, and it's ubiquitous in the Seattle area. Or maybe it's just all of the Uber drivers that I, I'm with, but everybody seems to listen to Cairo out here.
0: That is the that is the problem. Cairo is what Cairo is our talk radio station. It's right leaning. Well, Cairo, no, Cairo has Cairo is an empire, right? They mm-hmm. have a television station. They have all manner of media, but they are the talk radio station and it isn't conservative. It's they try to be, they're not public radio, but they try to have a broad spectrum of shows. And they had Luke Burbank for a long, long time who did a daily show that was 17 hours long. And who knows how they filled that show, but there are a lot of different, There's sports shows. There's it's not a, it's not a targeted demographic, but pff, for the life of me, I don't know who would listen to talk radio in the first place. So, but I hear it on in cabs and Uber
1: drivers. I hear it blaring. It's a thing to sort of have on that you don't have to focus on. Unlike the drum in the distance,
0: right? And unlike a podcast, yeah. which I which I think I think people are more attentive to podcasts. You know, it's less just like a radio on that's filling the room with sound and more of a, I mean, I'm sure there are people that use podcasts that
1: way, but you have to seek out a podcast and then you have to play each individual episode,
0: right? So you don't just turn
1: it on and, and then go
0: into the other room.
1: I'm amazed at how much you've leaned into the podcasting experience. We're here in your studio, but also as we were saying earlier, you've got somewhere in the neighborhood of nine to 10 podcasts,
0: Yeah, 90, 10, 90, 10 10 podcasts. (laughs) When, when I first appeared on this show, I had a podcast, but only one. Right? Is that true? Was I doing Roderick on the line? At yeah. The time? Oh, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Roderick on the line is a, an institution.
0: Yeah, it goes it goes a long way back. Right to the. I, I'm not an. I'm not one of the first generation
1: of podcasters. I was familiar with your music previous to that, but I think the way that we first came into contact was that our mutual friend and your podcast co host Benjamin Harrison. Heard about you through Roderick on the Line.
0: Right. And that Roderick on the Line was appealed and appeals to a certain sort of demographic of people that are in tech. Not all, but like we have tried to position ourselves not as a tech podcast, but Merlin sure. brings a lot of tech.
1: I think it's I think it's what we call in my industry the early adopters. Early adopters. So, you know, you were one of five podcasts in the world, <laughs> so naturally people gravitated toward you. We were tech
0: adjacent. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the early podcasts are all from what the 80s no there but in the in 2005 were there podcasts
1: yeah God, I feel like I've been podcasting for a, a, about that long in, in various forms but 2005, it, it's interesting so that you bring deep. up the 80s because like so many of the early podcasters were actually holdovers from the 80s you've, mm-hmm. you've got some uh, you've got some like MTV VJs I mean obviously like uh-huh. like Hardwick was was there Adam Curry had a podcast the, the, Adam Curry is popularly known as the podfather
0: So, yeah, it says here on the Internet, which I'm now accustomed to reading while talking to people, which I never would have done before, but, sure, the RSS feed started sometime there in 2003.
1: It's interesting to me that you're using the internet as a tool while you're podcasting now mm-hmm, because mm-hmm.
0: you seems unlikely
1: yeah you're you're very much someone who is who who is off the cuff who is bringing his own his <laughs> own information mostly right uh-huh but but, but certainly not fact checking in real time
0: no but i don't know enough about podcasting to have been able to say that yeah. apple added podcasting to itunes 4.9 music software in june of
1: 2005
0: this is a long time before i was aware of it or frankly interested in it
1: i think that's fair I, you know I, I think that a lot of the knowledge that you're bringing to the table generally in most of these conversations aren't things that people are going to have readily at hands right. however the year in which podcasting and the build of itunes in which podcasting was introduced is something that people certainly might call you out
0: on. i'm sure a lot that's right a lot of people would be like it wasn't june of
1: 2005 yeah. it was like it was may 30th I've got it tattooed on my back like John 316. <laughs> the day the podcasting started. Uh,
0: yeah, I was lucky because Merlin, uh, Merlin Mann gave me my first website for the Long Winters. And at the time, I didn't understand why I would need a website. You guys were like LiveJournal buddies, right? No, I was never on LiveJournal. And in fact, that, well, that was a problem for me because a lot of early Long Winters fans were on LiveJournal. And they were chatting about the long winters and about me in particular on live journal but I couldn't see it because it was all a secret mm. cabal and when I met Merlin he was on live journal and I said why don't you tell me what's going on over there why don't you tell me what you know is being said because I would hear it would be reflected right there would be there would be reverberations in the force was clear would,
1: that there are these secret conversations happening yeah, people, people would, meet up in person
0: people would be talking on the long winters uh fan page referencing things that were happening on Live Journal. And Merlin was like, No, it is I will never reveal what happens there. It is a private land. I was like, All right, whatever.
1: That's the interesting beginnings of a long and deep friendship that the two of you have.
0: <laughs> he came to a long winter show, that was how we met But he so he gave me my first website and then Roderick on the line is absolutely a product of him just saying I'm just gonna start recording our conversations. When did you start taking it seriously? well i took it seriously right away just because it was just like i took twitter pretty seriously right away it was a venue i was saying this the other day that prior to that the only way that i communicated with the world was through songs and then occasionally in the in the process of promoting a record i would go through a, a spate of being interviewed so i would sit sometimes sit in a hotel room in dublin and ten a junket yeah, right. Uh, either either go out and do that, yeah. or uh, phoner interviews. You'd be in the van driving into St. Louis, and kind of four days out or whatever. You'd get a call from the Riverfront Times, and they would talk to you for an hour about your upcoming show, and then write a piece.
1: I've been on the bad end of of a lot of those. <laughs> you know, in a lot of cases, it's like I mean, this is something obviously you had, had worked on a long time for, but. You'd finished the recording some time ago, and now if people are sort of, like, coming around and talking to you about it. You're in a van. The last thing in the world that you want to discuss is that album.
0: Oh, and you're also, you know, God, you're in moods. Yeah. And um, and so then you'd get to the town, you'd open up the local paper, and you'd read this review, which often said more about the 26-year-old reporter for the Riverfront Times than it did you. You were often, if not misquoted, then punctuation would be wrong, So you would look like an idiot because the person would either have left a comma out or put in a comma where it didn't belong. And when you're reading the article, you attribute the mistake to the person doing the speaking, right? Not generally. Like even I would read it and be like, what a dum-dum. Yeah. Wait a minute, it's me. I know the difference between there and there. But anyway, that was the only way that I was able to connect with my audience beyond just doing music. And a lot of musicians don't want to talk. It's clearly not
1: a problem with you. No, I like it. Do you feel that if Twitter and podcasting hadn't come along that you would be like holding court at the, on a corner somewhere or?
0: No, I, but all, I, but you're, I, you're
1: racking tour for sure.
0: I probably would still be, I still would, I would have released more albums, I think, if it weren't
1: for Twitter and oh. podcasting. So you think that this has had an adverse effect on your creative output?
0: It was a venue which was much easier to access, cheaper to access, a lot less I mean, I smoked a lot less cigarettes between podcasts than I did between shows, but being in a touring band is super hard Mm -hmm. and making albums is extremely cathartic, but really difficult and podcasting. It wasn't difficult for me and Twitter wasn't difficult. They're both fun. And so, yeah, I think it, I think I redirected a lot of creative energy into those places. And redirected a lot of, not just creative energy, but music was a place that I explored what
1: I was going through. Was part of the Long Winters petering out, was it was it the fact that you had these other outlets?
0: Oh, for sure. I mean, we were in the midst of making a fourth record, and I just couldn't quite get it finished. I don't know 100% why. I mean, there are a lot of reasons. I took a long time to make our third record, and I got really derailed during the making of what became the ultimatum ep that wasn't intended to be an ep it was supposed to be an album i since realized that i had bipolar disorder and started taking medication that's been in the last few years yeah and when i look back at my music career it was extremely colored by the various states of bipolar either crushing depression or or sort of manic megalomania and the record's that I made all reflect either a real manic record making state where I was drawing on the experience of the most recent sort of confusing year of wrestling with demons or the less productive version of that was going into the recording in kind of a manic state and then, plummeting into a place where I couldn't complete the record I couldn't even
1: envision you know what it was I,
0: how to make songs
1: or are the ups and downs that concentrated that the entire recording of a record is the result of one of the two ends of the spectrum
0: no but so I was what they called fast cycling which when I would read about it before I had before I I volunteered that it was possible I had this disorder. When I'd read about it and they would say fast cycling, I always assumed that meant like that you were up and down in the course of a couple of weeks. Well, fast cycling just means that you go from high to low in the course of a year. Mm. All my songs deal with the confusion that comes from missed human connection, which was a thing I I felt acutely. I liked people. I wanted to interact with people. I wanted to be part of a social milieu. I wanted to be known. But also I could not somehow make real lasting connections with people where I wasn't a source of tremendous frustration to them and where I didn't feel like they were elusive. And the whole goal of being together was elusive to me.
1: Certainly being a recording artist and going out and touring affords you the opportunity to at least take that first step.
0: It does, but all those relationships are really transitory. Mm. I mean, the only people you see every day are the people in your band and you hate them almost immediately. Being a touring musician is great for me because I would have short intense relationships with people and then it would then it would be gone we would be on the road those made sense to me but lasting relationships ones where uh, where people had expectations of me i just seemed to always fail to meet their expectations and i didn't know why it wasn't intentional i didn't have a ulterior motive the
1: sustain that was a difficult problem for you
0: no not necess- not sustain as much as it was people seemed in general to share with one another aspirations for what a relationship was supposed to produce. A sense of belonging, a sense of calm, companionship, investment in one another. They were islands in the storm. It was supposed to be a respite. And for me, relationships were just places of tremendous stress. The more that I loved a person, the more this was true. You were overcompensating, trying to impress them? No, 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 no. Uh, the opposite. I wanted to, I my understanding about, I mean, what seemed to be a perfect relationship for me was that I would
1: see my mate three days a week. You're talking about romantic relationships. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: romantic relationships. That was about the most that I, I mean, it's not the most that I could handle. Certainly I could handle seeing you every day. I just didn't want to. And that isn't what most of my girlfriends expected. Different standards, different expectations created in me a constant fuel to write music because music was the, an emotional language when I started podcasting and twittering right I had an opportunity to put not that stuff really on the table Merlin mm-hmm. didn't want to talk about my sadness and twitter wasn't a place for it but it was a new voice that I hadn't explored it was a voice I could only explore with friends right you could only sit and be funny and be chatty and storytell with people that, in your immediate circle and I could do it from the stage. When I was on tour, I would stand up there and tell long stories and there'd always be somebody in the back that was like, play a song. And as I got more confident, as my band got more popular, I was like, this is the show. Like, fuck you. If you don't want to hear me tell a story for 20 minutes and you know, and, and Nabil, our drummer would start twirling his sticks and would, and later on in the band, he would just open his phone and start reading it while I was in the middle of it. And then the snows came Long Winter's fans grew to accept that it was part of the thing. Was
1: it a source of conflict within the band?
0: No, because generally three quarters of the band at any given time were not storytellers and were either interested in the story or enjoyed hearing me talk.
1: When we're talking about having like really personal connections with somebody you fall into a trap if you're just the storyteller you're not doing 50% of the conversation you're not you're not there sort of listening and waiting for their response
0: right although I'm a good interviewer too i mean i'm interested in other people and willing to yeah. not just willing but like fascinated by their stories but there's a difference between being intimate and conversant and sharing the sort of the true things that people can share
1: you standing on stage talking to a, a darkened room is not that's not a, really a, a relationship no or it's, it's not a friendship certainly it's
0: broadcast yeah when sean nelson was in the long winters we would share a kind of on stage banter where the two of us were engaged in a storytelling form with sean
1: as a foil i've seen it and it was it was either with the long winters or harvey danger i can't remember which one but it was almost vaudevillian yeah
0: Sean is extremely smart and sensitive and also I think with me uh, with me as the as the main storyteller Sean was kind of off the hook and could be the one with the barb he would amplify the joke we had a very good on stage rapport and in neither case does that really you know, I don't sit with my loved ones and pace around the room telling stories about my adventures, right? That, that Where, disappoints <laughs> me slightly to hear that because that I, is what I imagine. Well, I mean, that's why I have a daughter, right? So <laughs> and and she 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 starts rolling her eyes after two. Yeah. But then as as time's gone on, I mean, when I started my second podcast, which was called Roadwork with Dan Benjamin. Dan wanted to have a show with me because he had a show with Merlin and he liked the sound of Roderick on the line. He enjoyed the show and he wanted his own one. He wanted his own Roderick on the line. And where do you find one of those? You just start a
1: podcast with the titular character. So we just have to call you up and we can start a podcast. Yeah, just call it. Just come up with a name. (laughs)
0: Uh, But with Dan, you know, Merlin didn't want to talk about sex. He didn't want to talk about religion and he didn't want to talk about politics. And over the years of doing Roderick on the line, I would sometimes be frustrated by that because, you know, I, I do want to talk about it. And Dan was open to hearing me talk about those things it's not that there's anything intrinsic to Dan's on my relationship that suggests more intimacy than with Merlin because Merlin and I are very intimate with one another but the show allowed for that stuff I would start to talk about about my relationships or you know about my beliefs and so it became its own entity you know they're two two podcasts both with just two middle-aged white dudes talking to each other but they and I think there are people that Merlin is overwhelming and they and they retreat to roadwork. Mm-hmm. And there are people that have uh, some issue with Dan, with his voice or with his method, his manner, and they are still loyalists to Roderick on the line. But they became, uh, to me, they're very, very distinct places, although on paper they don't read very differently.
1: You never had an issue with oversharing then? I don't, no. Yeah. Because I mean, um, obviously, like there are certain aspects of your life that you just don't want to delve into for fear of alienating the person you're talking about.
0: I'm okay Slightly fictionalizing people. I mean, I'm a very private person, but I never had a feeling that my privacy was a thing that required that I be reticent about my experience, my feelings, my thoughts. I mean, I have a different take on privacy.
1: Do you consider yourself to be introverted? to some degree oh
0: uh, in large part
1: i've talked about this before on the show but this was a source of contention with a few relationships in my life but one specific one in which we were actually living together and she would say to me i don't understand how you can go out on stage or host a podcast interview a stranger have an amazing conversation with them and then i take you to a party and you just stand in the corner and don't talk uh, to anybody because uh. you don't know anyone there and it's hard for me to reconcile those things in myself.
0: When it was first suggested to me uh, by a close friend that I was an introvert, I was insulted. The, long before there was yeah. even a thing, but
1: but uh But you've always been a performer.
0: Yeah, and I'm great at parties and I know a lot of people. I mean, back in the 90s when I would walk down the street in Seattle, I I, you know, I would stop every half a block and have a 20 minute conversation (laughs) with someone I knew. And as we were standing talking, people would come along and stop and be like, Hey, Seattle seemed like a smaller town then. And I was a younger person on the scene and I was extremely social. You know, a close friend at one point said, uh, was talking to me about me and said, well, you know, you're such an introvert that blah, 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 blah. I said, what are you talking about? I'm not a introvert and i and i was picturing someone that was really awkward at parties yeah. and somebody that was super internal and she said you're the most introverted person i ever met and she was a playwright who dealt with all kinds of you know people that were extremely uh, self she had the ability to peer into your soul big time and i and she said you know you don't the key distinction is that other people are a drain on you all your interactions with people, all your performance, your constant out there, going, 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 talking,
1: it all like saps you. You and put it all on the line and then you crash immediately. Crash.
0: And then you have to retreat into a into a like cone of silence where you stay completely alone until you recharge. And she said that to me and I was like well, that's how everybody is. And she said, that is not how everybody is. And it was a, a lightning bolt for me because it, it it explained a big part of why I had such trouble connecting with other people because being with me did not use up their energy. And so they didn't know why I had to go. They all naturally assumed that it was a, that, that I didn't like them or I was an insult to them or I was off with someone else and they just could never Understand that I just was alone. There's a kind of famous incident in my life where I was dating a girl and she said, and I said, Well, you know, I'm headed out to the bar. And she said, Can I come with? And I said, Oh, you won't like it. You know, it's just going to be me and a bunch of guys drinking and smoking and, and, uh, you know, you wouldn't have a good time. She said, uh, All right, sure. You know, go on, have fun. See you later. And so when I saw her the next day, she said, How was the bar? And I said, Oh, it was gross, as I said, you know, stinky lame dudes. And she said, that's funny because I ran into a friend who said that she saw you sitting alone in a cafe, writing in your journal until two o'clock in the morning. And I said, oh, well, I mean, uh, well, sure. You know, sure. I just, maybe I was doing that. And she said, why would you lie about that? Like if you had said, I don't you know i'm just going to go sit in a cafe and write in my journal that would have been more appealing than the story that you told like you you told a lie which made you look worse if you had just said i need
1: some alone time
0: she would have been fine yeah. with it much better with it yeah. than i'm going to go out but what it was was i there was some obfuscation some mm-hmm. i was trying to protect a thing about myself that i couldn't explain
1: you had an image of yourself that you need to project
0: Not to her, right? I just, to her it was more that I didn't want her to know that about me because I was scared of it, right? Because I didn't, I couldn't explain that I wanted to be alone. I only could get alone by explaining that I, because I I, I saw that it was normal to be with people. Mm -hmm. And so I had this sense, because I did go drink all night. I mean, that was absolutely a thing that it was plausible I would do. So it wasn't like a dramatic thing. I wasn't like, I'm going to go. I wasn't swashbuckling. It was more like, That's what, that would be my normal thing. But actually, some of the time I do this other thing. But that was the thing. That was the place I felt vulnerable.
1: When did you stop drinking?
0: I was 26
1: when I stopped drinking. Was there an incident?
0: Oh, well, I mean, my whole life up to that <laughs> point was an
1: incident. <laughs> was there the proverbial rock bottom?
0: Yeah, although bottoms are a funny sure. thing, right?
1: <laughs> um, There's they, always another one.
0: Yeah, the actual bottom that happened with me wasn't by far was not my worst yeah. day. And that's what's so confusing about them, right? I mean that was what was so devastating about Robin Williams killing himself. Yeah. It was just like that wasn't Robin Williams's worst day. Like he had way better days. It was just like the one where it all came home to roost. And I had one of those for sure. I mean you would have to in order to stop being a drug abuser. You would have to it's not a thing that you just wake up and wake up one day and say
1: that's it i'm done or i mean i'm sure that happens too it sounds from the outside that it was a confluence of things that you've slowly sort of been discovering about yourself there's the introversion there's there's the alcoholism and then like at what point do you connect the dots with the bipolar disorder i mean
0: it's it's just a it's been a tumbling experience i mean life has never been anything less than a than a total challenge for me, but it, and and I mean on sort of on a daily basis. But the challenge always feels surmountable. In a lot of cases that the surmount comes as a result of making a dramatic gesture. And four years ago I went on a very restrictive diet and felt a transformation. And I mean I wasn't able to maintain that in my life, but I quit smoking cigarettes that way, sort of like I have had enough. This bout of cigarette spawned disease is like my last this is the last time
1: i think a trap though we get into and and i'm certainly this way is looking at something as though making that change in your life is going to be kind of a, a cure-all you know like i I'm, I'm this way with meditation a lot i think <sighs> about it like i'm gonna start meditating and this is really gonna have a positive impact on every aspect of my life but obviously there's 10 million other things at play
0: right and you hear from people all the time that they're trying to make it they're trying to affect a geographic cure for what ails them. Like the problem is Seattle or the problem is this relationship or the problem is in some cases like this house. And in in my case, the difference between being drunk and high all the time and not being drunk and high all the time, obviously that's a massive change. And for me, what it meant was, I mean, when I was on drugs, I was not capable of starting anything. I just couldn't get the, I couldn't get the gears going on anything I was a I was not a function I was not a high functioning or even a medium functioning addict once I stopped I was then capable of getting a job and keeping it getting an apartment and keeping it getting a girlfriend and keeping uh, that relationship going for a period those were big changes in my life but I wasn't Yet, capable of going beyond getting something started and stable, he
1: became an adult, it sounds like at that point,
0: I did, but an adult in a culture that yeah. is that facilitates people being twenty six for the rest of their lives. You know, an adult where your adulthood has very few real expectations, like I didn't have a family. I didn't have it. I wasn't pursuing a career. I had a job that allowed me to be in a band. I had a band that allowed me to have a girlfriend. I had a girlfriend that allowed me to have a band. I didn't own a car, you know. I was living in a state of sort of downtown, hipster, perpetual youth. And it was only when I was in my 30s that I gained a foothold in the ability to pursue something to completion. Where I had an idea and I followed all the way through, and that really was the first Long Winters record. It was the first thing that I
1: that I really made. You had been in bands prior to that. I you don't you don't count them in the same way.
0: Well, we never made a recording and yeah. released
1: it. It was. I mean,
0: I do count it in that. That was a that was a stepping
1: stone. Mm.
0: When I was on drugs, I was writing songs, but I. Was not capable of having a band. When I got sober, I was then capable of having a band, but I didn't know how to get a show. Then I learned to get a show. Then I figured out how to get a practice space. You know, each one of these was an incremental gain. I look at the world though, and I see 21-year-olds that have companies or 21-year-olds that are in the you know, that work for the State Department. It's impossible to compare, right? But at 28 years old, I was firing on all cylinders, just having a band, an apartment. A girlfriend.
1: It's interesting that you were so transitory at that point in your life, and here, like looking around, and I've I've been to your place before, and you have planted so many flags here. You know, it's it, it's a house. I, I you know I know you've got like the vespas, and you've got like several several vehicles. You've got all these like these collections and and equipment. It seems like you've sort of almost made a point of going in the opposite direction.
0: Absolutely, I think that's a, that's a very astute observation. I think I I have tried to ground myself as I've gotten yeah. older and. Partly that's being grounded in the, you know, in a physical space, in a temporal space. Like, I, I have these things, this is, I have created a a little keep. And partly that, at one point in my life, that felt like a, a sort of adulthood. I'd made four albums, I had a column in the newspaper, like, I'd followed through. But I still was somewhat faithless in that I had not, I didn't feel like I had done a any lasting work
1: this is really interesting to hear as somebody who you know has been writing on the internet professionally for near 15 years at this point and does a few podcasts and i have the opposite problem in that i feel that everything i do is is ethereal right i mean i'm glad that i can get it out there as quickly as i can but i know that someone's going to read my story and it's going to essentially be gone the next day certainly episodic podcasts are like that so does does you know, like Twitter or podcasting, do these things somehow feel sort of more substantial or permanent?
0: I do feel like I have now a body of work in the sense that if I were to be hit by lightning or hit by a uh, hit by a large raven or something that took me out of the.
1: Those are both very Edgar
0: Allan Poe ways to die. <laughs> uh-huh. I feel like I will, I, I have represented myself.
1: Mm. In that it's sort of a pure expression of you as a person?
0: No, in the sense that I have contributed. There are lots of ways to contribute, right? And, and it's easy for us to see that so, if I had spent the last 20 years working at Habitat for Humanity, building houses or helping people out of, after a hurricane, it's easy to tie those experiences to contribution. Working in a soup kitchen, a contribution.
1: Affecting positive change in the world.
0: Yeah. Uh, in a, Again, in a kind of materialistic yeah. sense. It's very hard, to, I'm sorry, to use the word contribution when talking about something like a podcast. Mm. Because if I were to have taken all the thoughts I've shared on the podcast and written them in books and published the books and the books were well-received... Well then you could say,
1: aha, I understand this, right? These are... But isn't an, isn't an email from a fan, isn't that an affirmation of a contribution?
0: Absolutely, and that's why I feel like podcasts are, they are a form of literature or, uh, or, I mean, there are autobiographies that are just self-aggrandizing. There are autobiographies that are sort of just a historical sweep. And there are autobiographies that work as a guide, really, offering a comprehensive worldview that's useful to others, right? I've read autobiographies where I came away from the experience changed because it gave me insight into myself, gave me insight into other people and the way that people interact. So podcasts, up until the time that I started doing sort of the more recent two podcasts I do are, one of them's rooted in unusual stories from history, uh, which is, Omnibus with Ken Jennings and that's just like two smarty Pants reading a bunch of stuff the day before and then talking <laughs> and, and connecting it to other things right M- making, making kind of a sweeping story out of what could have been just a, just a two sentence factoid
1: which I would say is far and away the thing you're the best at and it's wonderful it's a yeah.
0: wonderful thing but it doesn't it isn't the same as like a like a personal th- that personal exposition which I think is useful to people who are searching
1: it's a strange impulse though to assume that people care about these things, right when it comes to you on a personal level.
0: One of the important realizations I had as a young person w- was that the feelings that f- in me that felt the most unique to me, the most and and these were the ones I was the the uh, the scaredest to reveal, the things that inhibited me the the knowledge that I had a problem that no one would understand inhibited me from being able to be with others when i realized that my problems were not unique to me there was always someone else that had the same experience because humans are infinitely varied and yet really all
1: very similar to one another it's that whole thing of that there're only five stories you can tell yeah
0: and you, and when you hear all the when you hear all the stories of people who throw themselves off of cliffs because of some shame that when you when you hear ultimately hear the shame and you're like oh that's nothing. Yeah. Are you kidding me? Like you you know, you're, you were embarrassed and, and, and stabbed yourself with your own quill pen and the murders that happen because people feel like they can't overcome their problem. And so they murder their spouse or they, you know, these terrible stories of people drowning all their kids because they're up against some wall that they perceive to be insurmountable. And realizing that and realizing that about my own problems and realizing that, that the way to overcome that shame was to reveal just reveal all with no, with the expectation that people would hear and understand famously, right? That famously the, the KGB would, would use people's homosexuality as a way to turn them into, into double agents because to reveal that would be so devastating to their lives that it would, it represented ruination. And so you, so they could go as far as be, uh, betraying their country rather than having this fact reveal
1: do you feel having sort of been through the ordeals that you've been through especially you know grappling with something like bipolar disorder that in your sort of darker moments that you have enough of a personal connection that you do sort of understand that motivation I mean, you brought up robin williams before or this idea of somebody hurling themselves over a cliff for something that's ultimately kind of silly in the long run Um, did you get to a dark enough point that like you can completely understand that motivation
0: oh for decades the motivation to I mean, there are some people that want to see the world burn. There are other people who just want to disappear from the world in one way, one fashion or another. I mean, I was never a suicidal person, but I always wanted to walk away, just walk away from everyone and everything I knew and go somewhere and be an anonymous guy in a hut. And that persisted and has persisted throughout the course of my life. And my grandfather did. He left three separate families, woke up one day. Said I'm going out for a pack of cigarettes and was gone and went elsewhere in the country and started a new family that had no knowledge of his prior family and then did it again, did it three times. And I think he was bipolar and I I recognize myself in his writing and in his behavior. And I did when I was young and I vowed not to be that person, but I understood him. I understood him because I there were so many instances in my life where I was like, well, I have, this is ruined. Like my life is ruined. The only solution to the shame is throw some stuff in a bag. But I never did. You know, I always came back. And as time went on, I I, I developed this kind of understanding that like, wow, the only shame I have, I mean, the the tremendous shame I have, the only antidote to it is to just put it out there. That was the great thing about music for me initially was I could just say all
1: those things. and You could, but you, you're obviously doing it in a veiled way. Yeah, I, certainly I, masked. I think it was on Roderick on the line, I heard you talk about Teaspoon. Yeah. The anecdote behind that is saying the same word four times and assuming that every person understands the deep and individual meaning right. <laughs> based on the way you say it.
0: Yeah. One, I say the word teaspoon and I mean the teaspoon used in cooking heroin. And I say the word teaspoon a second time. And I mean that that, that this girl is, is the smallest piece of silverware in the drawer. And then I say it again. You know, each one of those, is, I'm... I'm seeing the word teaspoon representing an entire story, and obviously I know people don't can't see it.
1: Is metaphor a, a help or a hindrance, though, when it comes to sort of putting yourself out there?
0: Oh, 100% a help. Yeah. I don't hide behind metaphor, but metaphor is super useful because you, you need to come at these things from a couple of different directions.
1: You can still feel that sense of catharsis, even though perhaps people aren't interpreting in the way that you meant it?
0: In some ways, even more so. But what's revelatory about podcasting is that I don't need to be as economical as you do in a song or a poem. So I can use a metaphor and then also go at the same idea a second
1: time. Do you feel that metaphor plays a role in podcasting for you?
0: For me, it does. I mean, people are podcast in a million different ways. But for me... I tell stories and stories I say all the time that my stories are 110% true (laughs) and they uh, and I I feel that they are like Like Paul Bunyan style yeah I don't but I but I don't I don't elaborate in the form of exaggeration right I don't say there were 500 people there when there were five but like historical fiction I will conflate two people in order to make a to, to make
1: the, the scope of the story manageable. Is that a conscious effort? I mean, obviously, time has its effect on that as well. I
0: mean, it's a conscious effort, but also it's part of my experience, right? If I, if I date somebody and I have a difficulty with them, and then a year later I date a different person, but the same difficulty is there, I can... Describe that in in the ter- in terms of having dated somebody where these were problems.
1: That's when though getting older and being able to recognize things in yourself comes in handy for sure. When the same pattern starts repeating itself over and over again.
0: Yeah, when I was twenty four, if I'd had a podcast, it would be like, "What is the matter with this girl?"
1: Um, because it's
0: a great name for a show. <laughs> everything feels so unique, yeah, right. But when you're f- like forty, you're like, "Well, the common." element in all of mm-hmm. these bad relationships is me. Yeah. And I see and I, so now I'm able to talk about it as a pattern and through storytelling because because the recognition that that was an issue came as a result of a moment where we were standing in the kitchen and she said where the hell were you last night and I said what do you mean and th- you know that's the moment where the um, where the exclamation point landed and so that's the story to tell. And I think a lot of people hear it and I get letters from people all the time that say, I'm not like you at all, but listening to your stories Mm. helped me understand my brother or my father or my boyfriend. And I have a lot more sympathy for that person now and a lot more understanding. It doesn't, and I'll always write them back and say, the problem with that is that you do have that understanding now, but that won't help either. It may help you a little bit in a kind of Al-Anon way. But you can't use that information to change this person or to affect, you know, you can't like get ahead of
1: them and feel like you know what they're going to do. Sure. But having the knowledge of why people do the things they do is certainly helpful.
0: I'm, I'm not sure if I get equal amounts of mail because I hear from a lot of people that say like, I never thought of that before. You've, you know, a lot of mail that says, I feel like a younger version of you. <laughs> and I really respond to that because when I was a younger version of me, I didn't have anybody to listen to. And that's another impetus to kind of be as, as revelatory as I am. And again, I don't feel like I've given away so much of myself that I don't have a private life. I still am very private and I keep myself very apart, in a in a way, in a, in a spiritual way. But I just don't see that talking about, talking about instances in my life where I'm not the hero, uh, where I felt ridiculous or shameful, like that doesn't hurt me. The Russians can't use that.
1: Now that it's out there, they can't, right? That's part of coming to grips with it is right. is making it a story.
0: And no one can. I, I just recently started getting treatment for bipolar disorder. And so when it was happening, I talked about it in real time. And that was shocking to a lot of people. On both sides of the, the issue, people that were that were relieved that I was talking about it because it made their own mental illness feel less like a private burden and people that were just stunned to hear it talked about so casually or so f- in such a familiar way or a, 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 not, not fearless exactly, but just, just talking about it as, as matter though matter n- normal. Yeah. Right. And it never occurred to me not to, but I do recognize that there are plenty of places where you can't be open about your bipolar disorder, right? You would, you would be, you would lose your commission in the U S army maybe, or fail to get your top secret clearance or even just be suspect to your boss at the printing plant. And I have the luxury because I'm self-employed to do that stuff and also feel pretty confident like 30 years from now, the risk is that an insurance company will Mm. say, we are not going to cover your thing because we did some research and we found out X, Y, Z. I recognize those risks and that's just the kind of, those are the risks of living the life that I, that I live.
1: Were you hesitant to medicate from a creative perspective?
0: No, not from a creative perspective. I was, although in the nineties I saw a lot of people take medication and watched it dull them.
1: I mean, that was the height of sort of like Prozac and Zoloft. I mean, people were just kind of evening out. Yeah. And people's eyes went, went dull. For sure. There is that notion, and, and there's probably some truth in it, as depressing as it is, that like people who are tortured may make better art.
0: You know, and it's hard to say out loud, so I can just say it in in my own term, which was, you know, I don't have schizophrenia, but I resisted taking medication, which I was prescribed a thousand times for depression and for ADHD and all these things that I was diagnosed
1: with. You feel like you were misdiagnosed? No,
0: no. I think
1: all of those things are probably accurate to some degree.
0: Well, I mean, the depression was always a component of bipolar and not recognized as that, which I think is pretty common Mm -hmm. because, you know, you only seek treatment when you're depressed. You don't seek treatment when you're manic. It's the greatest feeling. But ADHD, I mean, you could diagnose me with a lot of things. and, And as you said earlier, each one of these dramatic solutions to all my problems, starting with not drinking and going to the present day, going to the fact that I have a collection of of civil war swords, each attempt to make sense of my life just sort of reveals another, you know, peels back another layer of the onion, like, Oh, all these other things waiting for me on the other side of this curtain. No, I didn't take the drugs because like a lot of people with a mental illness, I felt that that was, I felt that my suffering was natural, that it belonged to me, and that I deserved it. And I think this is a this is a component of depression that's hard for people who aren't depressed to grasp. And it's a problem of anxiety or a problem of, of a lot of mental illness, which is that it feels native to you. And so although you recognize it as debilitating, it doesn't feel foreign.
1: In that you think that to some degree it's something that everybody else is grappling with?
0: Or that it is the punishment for the other things that you have that mm. are gifts. So I recognize that I was different from
1: others. I'm creative therefore I must be tortured.
0: And I didn't even connect it to creative. I connected the 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 torture to a to a sense of being able to see things being sensitive and being able to see things about the world that didn't seem apparent to other
1: people and this notion that dumb people are happy (laughs) well (laughs) smarter that the smarter you you are the more knowledge you gain like the more of these terrible things you can see in the world
0: yeah the terrible things seemed just obvious and normal it was surprising to me that they didn't hurt other people as much as they seem to hurt me. I never understood how you could meet somebody in high school and fall in love with one another and get married and have kids and be together for 50 years. That just seemed like impossible. And it required that they not they not have the same emotional reactions to things that I did because that was impossible to me from the beginning. I didn't set out to be, you know, when you're a kid, you don't, you don't even think in terms of like, one day I'll be dramatic. You know, you're a kid. You're just hoping to find some path. So I didn't seek to treatment because i didn't see disorder in the universe i saw my reactions to things my place in the world as being i was where i belonged and things were as bad as they were and it was only when i got into my mid-40s that i recognized that the depression that i was laboring under was no longer natural it had become a cloak on everything
1: do you feel like you wasted a couple of decades
0: I can't feel that because I have no I have no ability to go like alternate universe sure. on myself and know because if because I actually do that all the time yeah but alternate universe starts back in ninth grade like what if I had showed up to ninth grade in a leather jacket with with fucking motorcycle boots on would my life be different instead of showing up in a Garfield t-shirt <laughs> and a pair of polyester <laughs> pants that I found at the Goodwill I walked into ninth grade already squared off to fight with everybody just a big target on your back just like come on world yeah. because there was a uniform in i hate grade. mondays yeah that's right the uniform the appropriate uniform was izod shirt stonewashed levi's that had been ironed and i was there in you know in a double knit suit just like <laughs> and why 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 did i do that why did i do that to myself why was I at war with everybody and we're at war with everybody not in a way like not like i'm on drugs At war with everybody, just like Garfield shirt. Hi. So that alternate universe stuff, right? I mean, if I had not, if I had not been a drug addict, if I had not shot myself in the foot at every stage of my life, who knows? But I can't go back and change a single thing.
1: Yeah, But that's the sort of thing that we all grapple with when, as you said earlier, you see a 21 year old billionaire, you know, knowing that you are an intelligent person and a creative person and do potentially possess those tools.
0: Yeah. And, but again, like there's something, and, and, and it's interesting to look around my house because there's such materialism on display. I, I have 25 Stetson hats. (laughs) Now I don't wear hats. Like I don't wear Stetson hats. I don't go out in the day and walk around with a hat on. I feel a little bit, I'm a little contemptuous of people that do. Even men my age who have decided that they're going to wear a Serape and a giant hat as part of their middle age transformation into Tom Waits. I have all those hats. Mm -hmm. I have the
1: Serape, but I'm- The the gateway is there if if you need it.
0: But I have those hats for a different reason, a reason I don't know. I don't fully understand. And it is a materialistic one, but- at another level, I don't think about the world materialistically. I'm trying to pass through it in a way where, the, where expectations are different. Like I know that no accomplishment of, of wealth or success is ever going to be gratifying to me. And so I don't really, I don't look back. I mean, I, I certainly I think, wow, what if I bought Bitcoin and now I would just be shooting gold bullets <laughs> from the top of the Eiffel Tower and nobody could stop me. But it's all. But th- that always represents freedom to me. All wealth represents freedom, and all freedom represents like the, the luxury of time to think, time to sit, and.
1: In a way, even brood. Wealth is freedom, but I, I mean this. This actually this touches on a couple of things we've spoken about. You're landing an anchor when you have all these possessions. This means that you're not again as transitory as you were in your twenties. It, it also means that for certain reasons you can't. Become your grandfather because you've got all these things here. But is having possessions really freeing at the end of the day?
0: But it is both thing. I mean, in a way, if you if if you came in and with a valid justification said, "I'm taking all these hats," and I said, "Whoa, whoa, 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 whoa," and you said, "No, no, no, it's important that I take these Hat hats." Police. And if it was if you were saying like you don't need these hats, yeah. I would fight you to the death. But if you came in and said, "I need these hats." I Brian Heater. I'm here. I need these hats. I would say, geez,
1: take the hats. Do you ever watch those hoarder shows and just wonder what you would do in that situation uh, if they came in? Yeah.
0: The thing is, I don't have that. Everyone who tries to come in yeah. and uh, no one tries to
1: intervene. But you know that you know that part. Like you've seen you've seen some of these shows, right? You know that. that part where it's like it's literally it's it's the woman is standing there with a trash bag yeah. and like, do you need this? Do you need this? Right. A can of cat food or yeah. something.
0: Usually, people who come in and say, "I'm going to help you." immediately become engrossed in what the things are. yeah. And so what they see is a lot of things, but then they're like, well, what is this? And I'm like, oh, that's a belt buckle that was worn by a Japanese soldier in World War II. And they're like, really? And I'm like, aha, because the things are stories, right? Every, yeah. every one of these is a story. Uh, but, if you, but I'm also, anytime somebody comes into my house that looks like they could wear one of these things, I put it on their head and I'm like, does this look good on you? Would you like this? And nine out of 10 times, they're like, no, thank you. <laughs> And I'm like, okay, great. So like Hodgman, every time he comes into the house, <laughs> I dress him in some Civil War uniform and say, don't you think this would be a good look for you? And he's like, the sleeves are five inches too long. And I'm like, I know,
1: but you could roll up the sleeves. Oh, but he'd be such a great Civil War general. And he
0: puts it, he's like, no, thank you. Yeah. I mean, he'll he'll sit and let me take a picture of him. but <laughs> He's like, I don't need a Civil War outfit. And Ben Harrison, too. Yeah. Like this right here sitting on top of this box is a 1940s tuxedo that I have for Ben Harrison. Now, I don't know why. It doesn't fit me, but hopefully it fits Ben. And if it doesn't fit Ben, I won't give it away. I'll put it in a box and wait for someone it does fit to come along. The material things, uh, they have a lot of meaning for me, but I'm still one, one day away from putting 10 things in a bag and walking out the door. And the only thing that has permanently rooted me in the world is my daughter, which was unexpected. I always thought what would happen is I would have a kid and I would grab the kid and the bag and the two of us would split a la the road. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I recognize in her that she's not like that. She doesn't want to split. She wants to go in. And so I can't split because I have to be there. I have to have her back. And that does not feel burdensome to me. Right. All the things that that people who don't have kids who say like, if I have kids, it's I don't want to do it cause it's going to ruin my life or it's going to, I I like the way things are now and I don't want to disturb that by having a kid. F- for me, it was a perspective that I had, but I couldn't know what it was like to have a kid. And when you do have a kid, the things that you get rid of, at least in my case, I mean, I know a lot of people that are 23, they have a baby and they feel like they're missing out on life. But I lived an awful lot of lives I don't feel like I'm missing out on anything. I'm having this, you know, people are like, hey, let's go to Liz Fair tonight. And I'm like, well, I've got to sit and watch my daughter sleep. It doesn't feel like a sacrifice.
1: Because you've seen Liz Fair. 25. I've seen Liz
0: Fair. I've been on stage with Liz Fair. Yeah. I, but I've also seen my daughter sleep. But it just feels like I have a responsibility. And that responsibility, and this is what I don't understand about my grandfather. And it feels generational that a man, up until very recently, and in some Parts of our culture and in global culture still true. A man just doesn't bond with his kids the same way. They don't feel that responsibility. The children are, are the province of their mothers and grandmothers. And the men are out smoking cigarettes or not even there. And so my grandfather was able to leave a half a dozen children in the lurch. And I, I can't imagine it didn't haunt him. But the, the fear of being haunted wasn't enough punishment to keep him from, from needing to run. And in my case, it's I'm utterly bonded to this little person, and I couldn't do either thing to my little girl. Are you happy? No, no, and not i and so this is the next thing that I struggle with. How do I find what that means? First of all, how do I discover what people mean when they say it? Are you fulfilled? no, and that I think is root I think that's connected yeah. to happiness. I don't know what it would take to be fulfilled.
1: was running for city council part of that an attempt yeah. to
0: an attempt to put a, a more concrete framework around contributing to the city and to society if i had been elected to public office i would be serving in a way that made sense to others i think i would have been miserable in the job because what interested me about it was being in a in a position to to bring clarity to public works and to bring an interest in In city management to a job that required that you make a compelling case to the city, right? There are city managers that just sit and come up with plans and do things, but the politician has to be interested enough in those plans to play a role there, but also able to communicate those plans to to the electorate. And I felt like that might be a calling for me. But what I realized, at least in Seattle's city politics, and I think in politics in general now, it's just a venue for people who want to yell at you. It's so much less. I mean, the cities are being run by city managers now, and the the political class is just performing some some bizarre ritual.
1: It's that Parks and Rec scene when they have the, the, the city hall. <laughs> right, where the people yeah. stand up like, I
0: can't, my cat is getting radio signals, and the, they're like, that's not our problem. But the cities still need yeah. to be run. I'm not really, I, I do not have the nature to be in a city job. And the mistake I made was thinking that being on the city council was not just the worst city job. And I know a lot of people on the council that love their job. So I can't, it's kind of like being a kid or having a kid. I don't know if I'd been elected, whether I would really enjoy the work or not, but I didn't like campaigning for
1: it. Do you have any idea what's next? More podcasts. I don't think I can have very many more podcasts. What about that album that you've been sitting on? I,
0: I continually think that's next, but it's been 10 years yeah. of thinking that's next.
1: So what, what's the holdup? I mean, there's a lot of fear behind it now. Yeah. Um, because it's you've waited so long.
0: Because I've waited so long because I've invested so much agony in it. Mm. And it's not just the agony of making it. It's also the agony of looking at it for eight years and not knowing what to do. There's a problem when you communicate to others and succeed That you feel like you need to do better next time. And in my case, as soon as I put that expectation on myself, I cannot uh, succeed to my own expectations, right? Every attempt I make uh, to complete a song is an attempt that ends in failure. And the songs that I have succeeded in writing in the last 10 years, and I have written quite a few, there was... Uh, the, the songwriter Ben Lee, who lives in L.A., wrote me at one point and said, I, I'm putting together a choir in Silver Lake, the Silver Lake Choir, of just like, you know, cool kids that want to sing in a choir.
1: little polyphonic spree. Polyphonic yes. spree. Yeah.
0: And he said, and I want to have original music. I don't want to just sing Christmas carols. I want to put a put a band together and have original music. Will you write a song? And I said, sure. And then I forgot about it. And then he wrote me and said, we need the song by Wednesday. And for whatever reason, the stakes felt low because if it was bad, he would just throw it away, and I would wouldn't remember
1: it. The stakes felt low, but also you had a deadline.
0: I had a deadline, and it was right now. You know, this was Monday; it's due Wednesday. I picked up a guitar. I wrote a song. I had a middle. I had a, a middle eight that I hated. I mean, I liked it when I wrote it. And then an, uh, two hours later, I listened to it and I was like, it's garbage. And that's the point at which I would have thrown the whole song away. But because I had this Wednesday deadline yeah. and I didn't care, I threw the middle eight away and wrote a new one. I liked it and I sent it to him. I recorded it on my phone with a, w- with my message app and sent it to him that afternoon. He liked it. They recorded it. And it's, it exists in the world. You know, then I was like, oh, I wrote I wrote a song. Uh, the next song I wrote was during the last election where, you know, a friend wrote me an email and said, we're putting a a record together of songs about Donald Trump. And I said, Oh, all right. And I sat and I wrote a song from the perspective of a Trump supporter called make America great again. I wrote it in an afternoon. I recorded it on my phone. I sent it off and it's on that album. And then most recently I was texting with Jonathan Colton, and I said, "What do you, you know, what's going on?" And he was like, "Well, I'm in LA. I'm I'm working on a record with Amy Mann." And I said, "You and Amy Mann are making a record?" And he said, "No, Amy's making a record. I just, you know, co-wrote a couple of songs with her." And so I texted Amy and said, "What the fuck? <laughs> You're writing songs with Jonathan Colton?" And she said, "Just a couple. You know, a couple of people have added a song to this record." And I was like, "Well, is there room for another song?" And she was like, "I mean, no, the record's done. But if you send me a song, I'll listen to it." And I sat down at the piano and I wrote a song and sent it to her the next day. Again, recorded on my phone and she recorded it and put it on. It's the last song on her record. Uh, she, she wrote a beautiful bridge to it. And so in each one of those cases, I had an immediate deadline, not a not two weeks away. There was no money involved in any one of those situations. It was just like, hey, write a song and get it to us within a couple of days. And I was like, you
1: know, damn it. And wrote. There's a deadline and and there's also a power in knowing that it's going to exist in the world.
0: Yeah, but I don't care as much Mm. or I'm terrified of it existing in the world. You know, I'm terrified of putting a song out there and and having it like fail people, like fall short of their expectations or their hopes for it. And as 10 years have gone by since the last record, I only feel the pressure of. 10 years of built-up expectation. Now, 99% of the, even the Long Winters fans, 99% of record buyers have not been sitting for 10 years wondering where the next Long Winters
1: record and, is. And 10 years isn't unheard of between records. Although unusual. I mean, sure. 10 years is well, the sure. entire career of the Beatles. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: But And I know there are people who would welcome it, and I imagine that it would make back the money I spent on it. Maybe
1: you need to stop comparing yourself to the Beatles, John. It is,
0: it is a thing that
1: adds to the inhibition that's way worse than comparing yourself to zuckerberg
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah well so the record is i've said that there were three things that i needed to get done you know i have a people say like why don't you just make a checklist it's so Mm. gratifying you go down and you check things off the list I i can't do that i put a checklist on the wall and you know and the first thing is like get out of bed have some granola and the second thing is finish college And the third thing is finish the book you've been writing for ten years. (laughs) And the third or the fourth thing is finish your album. And so I check off the granola and then I stare at the list and feel awful. I cannot make a list that's just clean the house, do the dishes, and feel at the end of the day that I had that I'd
1: done anything. You're so stuck in the mindset of the album of the pre internet era. You know, you have this you have an iMac in front of you, you have these microphones, you've got 70 guitars. Yes. You could record a song and put it online.
0: Well, yeah. I mean, I, rec- I if, if I could record it on my phone and email it to somebody and have it appear online, I am stuck in that. I'm stuck in the idea of finishing a book and having it published in leather. And that's, yeah, that's a product of, like, it's a failure of my imagination but also a failure of my mastery of the technology. I wouldn't know how to put a song on the internet. It's clear enough that I could spend an afternoon looking it up mm-hmm. and and learn it and, and do it, but
1: that, you, you could probably
0: just text Merlin and he'll do it for you. <laughs> he would,
1: he would. I'd be more than happy there, to.
0: There are twenty five people that would put it up uh-huh. on I'll, the internet I'll do for it. me. Right in December of two thousand fifteen, and the people at the University of Washington said, you know, you're the the director of your department, comparative history of ideas, is retiring, and when he retires, he's the last living soul that ever had any connection to you being in university, and so you need to graduate. Because once he's gone, you're just like a game of telephone to the people that are here. The new director of the department is somebody from somebody who was in the PhD program, and you were already a myth then. Like there, in the in the department at the university where I went, there is a poster of me on the wall, (laughs) so it suggests that at one time I was a living person. It's not like
1: Back to the Future, where it just slowly starts to disappear.
0: So I said, well, what do I have to do to graduate? And they were like, nothing, nothing. You never had to do, you, you know, 12 years ago, you could have graduated. And so in 2016, an envelope appeared in my, in my mailbox that was from the University of Washington, shaped like a diploma. And I didn't open it because I didn't want to, I, didn't, I just wasn't ready to face the fact that one of those things on my to-do list was checked off. I couldn't celebrate it. I didn't know how to do that. I wasn't sure what to do. It's you know? all, I mean, it's
1: also less momentous just getting it in the mail. Yeah, it showed like up in the Finishing mail. an album. Yeah, I didn't walk yeah. with a
0: hat on or anything. Yeah. And I didn't want to just open it there alone in my kitchen and go, huh, then that chapter of my life was over. So I left it in the envelope and it sat on the kitchen counter for six months and then it moved to the kitchen table for four or five months and then it moved to a bookshelf it just kind of migrated around my house and it was there until a month and a half ago at which point i was so frustrated with myself because now what was it it was like schrodinger's (laughs) diploma and so i opened the envelope and i pulled the diploma out but i opened it upside down so i pulled it out and it was facing down so now it was just a piece of paper with maybe a diploma on the other side and it lay there on the table for several weeks. And eventually somebody was going to set a glass down on it. And so I was searching through some boxes and I found a, a frame, a picture frame that was diploma shaped that I'd purchased nine years ago at a thrift store. It still had their 99 cent tag on it. I purchased it at some point years and years ago when I considered graduating from college, when I when I toyed with the idea. Like, oh, I'll get a frame. I saw
1: the frame, and I was like,
0: it's a diploma frame. One day I may need it.
1: It's like a checklist on the wall.
0: So I found the frame. I pulled it out. I took it into the kitchen. I took the diploma, still face down, and slid it into the frame face down, and then the frame sat on the table face down for some number of weeks or months, however long ago this was. And it was a month and a half ago where I finally was, sitting in the room with my mom. And I said, you see that there next to your elbow? That's maybe my diploma. And she was like, you're a ridiculous person and turned it over and looked at it. Didn't show me looked at it. And she said, it is your diploma. Now, what are you going to do? Now the Schrodinger's cat has revealed itself. You haven't seen it, but it's been seen. And I said, well, I mean, there's now that it's been seen, I guess I'll look at it. But I waited for her to go.
1: There you go. That was our friend John Roderick back for another episode. Always a pleasure speaking with him you can catch john in a number of different places on a number of different podcasts including road work omnibus roderick on the line and friendly fire with our friend ben harrison and of course the long winters discography is still available on spotify uh, and at finer record stores everywhere thanks to him thanks to you guys as always for listening to the program if you like the show there are a number of ways to support us please rate and review us on itunes google podcasts we're on spotify now we have a youtube page like us on facebook if you have any feedback it's riwellcast at gmail.com follow us on tumblr that's riylcast.tumblr.com. that is the first and best place to get all your riyl related information and that's about all we got for this week so stick around because we are going to be back just about this time next week with another episode of riyl